if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we preached originally, let us be accursed. Let us be anathema, right? Don't follow us. I mean, there, I think that there's almost no verse in scripture that more, that more beautifully highlights the fact that the Pope and the bishops are subordinate to the truth and not superior to it. They're not in control of it. They can't mold it as a, however they wish so that they can agree with the globalist, humanist, transhumanist or transgender or whatever agenda. They can't do that. They have no authority to do that. Hey everyone, remember when just a few weeks ago now we heard the news that the Pope was going after Bishop Strickland? There was a Vatican visitation, even worse, that one of the most controversial left-leaning bishops in America, Bishop Kikanis, was the one or one of the two the Pope sent to an investigate or to, to uh, do a visitation on Bishop Strickland. We've seen these visitations lead to cancellation of orders and of, of um, things like this, orders being shut down, traditional orders being shut down. And uh, here it was for Bishop Strickland. And it, I think it gave a lot of people a scare. Oh no, what if we lose Bishop Strickland? It's not so easy though, you know. A bishop can't just be kicked out. But how's that going to play out? And what are the rules? Well, there's no one better to talk to on that than Dr. Peter Kozneski. He was a, he's a traditional Catholic and writer right now. He's written many, many books on the history of the church and of the papacy and so on. But he um, really has clarity of thought on this. I've been reading some of his articles over at uh, Catholic Family News. Incredible. So stay tuned. This is going to be very interesting, this episode of The John Henry Weston Show. Hey, friends, this July, we at LifeSite are celebrating 25 years of service to life, faith, family, and freedom with a gala in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. So especially for those of you who couldn't join us in the United States, LifeSite is gathering our whole team and a few very special guests in the pro-life and pro-family movement for a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity at our newly announced 25th anniversary Canadian gala. LifeSite's star video reporter Jim Hale will be there with an on-stage special with the 16-year-old Canadian pro-family hero, Josh Alexander. Experience LifeSite's Faith and Reason show live with Father James Altman and Liz Yor. And you'll be able to interact with our reporters from all over the world, including U.S. Bureau Chief Doug Mainwaring, Canadian reporter Anthony Murdoch, and Rome correspondent Michael Haynes. You'll also hear keynotes from LifeSite co-founder Steve Jelsevac and myself. So RSVP for the 25th anniversary Canadian Gala now. And don't miss the opportunity to get a live, in-person, studio experience of LifeSite's top news show that broadcasts every Friday at 8 p.m., Faith and Reason. Seating is very limited, so RSVP and get your tickets today for LifeSite's 25th anniversary Canadian Gala in the beautiful Hilton Toronto Markham Hotel this July 18th. To buy tickets for the 25th Anniversary Canadian Gala, visit gala25can.lifesitenews.com. I look forward to seeing you there. God bless you. Dr. Peter Kozneski, welcome to the program. Thank you, John Henry. Thank you for inviting me. Let's begin as we always do with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, 
and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So, Peter, very complex questions here. You know, with that seeming like the Pope was going to go after Bishop Strickland, and there was there was a mini heart attack for a lot of people. Um, but that got a lot of us thinking. Catholics in Puerto Rico, I'm sure, thought of that a long time ago when their bishop was removed. Um, speaking, of course, of uh, Bishop uh, Daniel Torres, he's the one who allowed for conscientious objection publicly uh, for the vaccines, for the COVID vaccines. And uh, he was summarily dismissed from his diocese by Pope Francis at only 57 years old. So, you know, with that and other such happenings around the world, obviously when when we heard of the visitation on Bishop Strickland, it was, you know, a big gulp. But it did then raise this question. What do we do? What do we do uh, in this situation? Is the bishop just supposed to leave? And uh, that's why I thought you're the perfect person to go to. You were one who uh, I thought of right away. And it was after hearing Bishop Strickland, uh, excuse me, Bishop Schneider. When Bishop Schneider was talking about what bishops and priests should do in light of Traditionis Custodis and the more severe restrictions of the Latin Mass, he's actually saying it's improper to follow those directions. It's right to disobey them because they're unjust. So yes. if you can unpack some of this for us, that would be fantastic. Sure. Well, so the, 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 the most important principle to begin with, and this is a principle of natural law, um, really, it's something that is that belongs to the structure of reality as God created it, is that all authority exists for a certain purpose. It doesn't exist as a free-floating, in-the-void, arbitrary imposition that can coerce people to do whatever it wants them to do. No, authority's purpose is to promote and foster the common good of the society over which the authority is placed. Now, that common good is also something definite. For example, in a country, it might be the peace of the country, good laws, good morality. You know, these are the things that the governor or the, the ruler is supposed to see to. And if the ruler acts against the good of the people in an extreme way, they can actually either refuse assent to what he's doing or they can even rise up against him. Now, in the Catholic Church, we don't rise up against popes and bishops. That's not that's something that we can't do. We don't pick out pitchforks and, and, and run after them. Although probably in the Middle Ages, people would have done something like that. <laughs> they probably did. <laughs> um, but, but it's still true that just as with any authority, the pope is placed by Christ in the church to serve a given function, and that is to promote the common good of the church. He does that in a couple of ways. He does that by teaching the true faith. Um, by teaching the, the deposit of faith revealed by Christ through the apostles, um, by promoting good morals and good discipline, by appointing worthy bishops, or at least bishops that he thinks are worthy. Uh, he might be mistaken. Every human being can be mistaken. But what a pope wouldn't have the authority to do, even though he has the supreme authority in the church, would be to thwart Catholic doctrine, to, uh, to undermine Catholic morality, uh, to appoint wicked men as bishops, such as in nepotism or simony, when popes in the Renaissance were appointing their 14-year-old you know, nephews as cardinals and so forth. Um, when they do this kind of thing, they are actually acting ultra vires, to use the technical term, outside their powers, outside their authority, contrary to the nature of what their authority was given for. Um, and so that raises the really uh, interesting question, the ecclesiological question of 
Um, is it possible for a pope to act so much contrary to the common good and to justice in a given situation that his act is invalid, that it has no force, that it, it, it's, it's not only that it's, it's not like a law that's imperfect or a command that is imperfect, but it's not a command at all. It's not a law at all. Is that possible? And the answer of the church, the tradition of the church is yes, that is possible. St. Thomas says an unjust law is no law at all. It doesn't have the rationale of a law. Um, and so I, I would argue, uh, many would argue, that if a pope removed a bishop arbitrarily for no good cause, there was no canonical process, there was no reason given, and no reason could be discovered. And in fact, there was evidence that, that the reason he removed such a person is because he was conservative or traditional or teaching the faith or upholding good discipline and morals and so forth, then that act would be null and void. That would be an act that should be ignored. Um, the bishop in question should assume that he is still bishop because he's, he is still bishop. Um, the, the pope can only remove somebody for just cause. He can't arbitrarily remove people. The, the church is, the papacy is not a tyranny. It's a monarchy. And we have to remember that. Boy, though, what a mess. Yeah, I guess it's a mess anyway. Yes. But the, the situation of Daniel Torres, for instance, in, in Puerto Rico, um, you know, the, the new bishop came in and it's all whatever. How does this work in, in practice? Because it's, uh, what a nightmare. What if yes. the legitimate bishop and might as well use the example that everybody's thinking of. Bishop Strickland has been in America, a hero for American Catholics, for Catholics around the world, actually. One of the only outspoken bishops in the country, e even though there are a good number of bishops who are faithful and who every once in a while will, will make their voices heard. No one is doing that like Bishop Strickland. Um, and yes, he is ruffling feathers. He feels in conscience he should be. And I think a lot of the faithful would agree with him. So let's say it's for that reason, for his being outspoken for his going to LA to to do the uh, procession uh, of reparation, his his being outspoken on life, on family, um, his taking up of Father James Martin for his heresy, all those things. It's for that that Bishop Strickland has gone after, and he's just told that's enough. You're you're gone. We're just like with Bishop Torres. We're going to replace you with someone else. Mm -hmm. So this this plays out. How how do you see that playing out if it's yes. unjust? Let's yeah. make the hypothesis that it is unjust. Yes. Well, so I, I, if you don't mind, I want to address, though, a point that you made, because I think it's important for the sake of the argument. That is, why is it legitimate for Bishop Strickland or for Bishop Schneider, the auxiliary bishop of Astana in Kazakhstan, to mm -hmm. speak about issues all over the world, to address issues outside of his diocese, to be teaching the, the, the Catholic faith to a very large audience, you might say a global audience, is that legitimate? There are some people out there who, who want to say, no, every bishop should just restrict himself to his own diocese and only concern himself with local affairs. I want to point out, and you know, you know, I'm not, you know, the biggest fan of Vatican II who's ever lived, right? But I just want to point out that's completely contrary to what Vatican II says. 
um, in Lumen Gentium, Lumen Gentium says that, um, it says, this is in paragraph 20, just as the office granted individually to Peter, the first among the apostles, is permanent and is to be transmitted to his successors, so also the apostles' office of nurturing the church is permanent and is to be exercised without interruption by the sacred order of bishops. And then it goes on to say in number 23, each of them, as a member of the Episcopal College and legitimate successor of the apostles, is obliged by Christ's institution and command to be solicitous for the whole church. For it is the duty of all bishops, all bishops, to promote and to safeguard the unity of faith and the discipline common to the whole church. I mean, it's as if they're trying to underline this, right? That even though the bishop's proper territory over which he has immediate jurisdiction is his own diocese, right? He can't go out ordaining priests all over the place. He has to stay within his own diocese, but he's still concerned with and should be promoting actively the good discipline and the faith of the entire church in whatever ways are suitable for him. Um, and I would think, you know, an example of that would be Bishop Fulton Sheen, right? With the way he preached over the television airwaves, you know, to millions of people. And although I'm sure he ruffled some modernist feathers back then, most people were happy to have Bishop Sheen on primetime television, you know, preaching the gospel, right? Um, this is what Bishop Schneider is doing. This is what Bishop Strickland is doing using methods like YouTube or Twitter or whatever it might be. And they look outrageous, I think, not because of what they're saying, but because of how few are those who are saying these things that they're saying, right? But mm -hmm. if you just sort of rewound the clock by 50 or 100 years, what they're saying often would be perfectly obvious. Like, well, yeah, of course, that's what the Baltimore Catechism says, you know? <laughs> so we're not talking about outlandish opinions as if as if these bishops ha are saying things from Mars. I mean, they're saying just what's in the catechism, the traditional catechism, you know? Um, but to get on to your question, yes, of course, it would be a terrible mess in a situation where, let's say, Bishop Daniel Fernandez Torres said, and in fact, he, he made this statement, he made a very bold public statement, I have done nothing wrong. They've never told me I've done anything wrong. And in fact, they offered me another position if I would just resign my 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 diocese, which shows that I haven't done anything wrong. Because if you're guilty of some wrongdoing, they're not going to say, okay, here's another plum position over here that we'll give you. I mean, basically, they were trying to bribe him to leave his diocese because the other bishops didn't like him. And it wasn't just about vaccinations. It was about he didn't want to send his seminaries to the common seminary. He didn't mm -hmm. He didn't want to um suppress the traditional latin mass you know there were a number of things but none of them could could be called false let, let alone delicts or, or any kind of serious fault um and so if he had if he had said um you know with all due respect um your holy father um i i admire you i pray for you um i want to be in communion with you but although you appointed me bishop, actually, I think it was Benedict XVI who appointed him bishop. But anyway, mm -hmm. although the Pope appointed me a bishop, I was, I, I was, when I was consecrated a bishop, it was Jesus Christ himself who established me as a bishop. And that's also the teaching of Lumen Gentium. It wasn't the Pope who made me a bishop. It was Jesus Christ who made me a bishop at the Pope's appointment, right? And, now, and once you're a bishop, you're a bishop forever, just like you are a priest forever. And if there's no, if there's no grounds for removing a bishop justly, then he remains the bishop of the place. Um, the, the pope, if, if the pope is not the source of his episcopacy, then the pope doesn't have complete arbitrary authority over whether he gets to serve his flock as a bishop or not. That's from Christ. It's not from the pope. The pope basically says, "You go to this diocese, 
I, I'm, I'm appointing you to this diocese, but it's Christ who's establishing you in your authority over this diocese, right? This is very important to grasp. Um, now, I'm not saying it's an easy issue because these two spheres, they sort of collide in a way. The Pope has immediate supreme universal jurisdiction in the church, which is which means in practice he can do whatever it is within his ambit of authority to do, and nobody can stop him, and nobody is, is over him. Um, but it, it again, it means within the ambit of his of his authority, within the sphere of his authority. So I think what would happen on the ground is if Bishop Torres had said that, I, with all due respect, I'm staying here, I'm the bishop, and, and you can't remove me arbitrarily, then maybe the Pope would assign another bishop, and then there would be, so to speak, two bishops in this area, but there would only be one true bishop because there's already a bishop there who's there as a bishop, uh, with that, and he's still there. He's going to be there as long as he as he lives, uh, unless he's removed for just cause or dies, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And the new bishop will be a usurper or an imposter. Um, would this be messy? Absolutely. Has church history seen these kinds of messes before? Absolutely. If if you read about the history of the Church of Constantinople, for example, it's crazy how many times patriarchs were deposed and re reinstated and they went back and forth and there were conflicting patriarchs. We don't want that situation. We don't want that situation. But we will, I, I would argue, we should be willing to to tolerate such a such a messy situation rather than compromise on this point mm -hmm. that the bishops are not the vicars of the pope right yeah yeah that's so stunning you know it's funny in a way you you feel that you you feel like oh of course the the vicar is the uh, excuse me the, the the bishop is the vicar of the pope that doesn't make sense actually no the authority yeah. to govern comes from christ it, it it's, it's funny that that would even you know, but it is a thing. It is a thing. I think with most Catholics, or a lot, that do think that way, because yes. you know we were always taught the Pope's supreme pontiff, and you know, and I this guess is where it does help when you have a dictator, dictatorial pope like we do now. <laughs> it certainly seems yeah. that way. I think I think what happens is that that as long as a pope is um, exercising his monarchy in let's say a reasonable way. A way that 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 doesn't give cause for scandal or for alarm or for uh, yeah, um, then I think most people are just content to assume that he is completely in charge of everything, and he hasn't done, he doesn't do anything to make you question your understanding, but maybe maybe that maybe that you have a false understanding of these things, but what but Pope Francis is so extreme in 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 his actions and in his teachings. You know, his teachings on LGBTQ, his teachings on marriage and family, his teachings on civil authority, his teaching on sacraments and liturgy. I mean, there are so many uh, alarm bells ringing, right? You, you almost become deaf with the alarm bells that are ringing that you start to look at these issues more closely and you and you realize, oh, wait a minute. So the papacy actually has limits. I mean, it's kind of obvious once you say it, right? Because it's a created authority and the only authority that's absolute is God. And of course, any created authority can be resisted if he abuses his authority. And this is something you can find in the whole canonical and theological tradition. You know, Torquemada says this, Cajetan says this, Bellarmine says this, Suarez says this, Aquinas says this. They all say that that any time an authority, even in the church, abuses his office, he can be fraternally corrected and even resisted and disobeyed, right? I, I document these things. I'll give you some links that you can add for readers who want to read more, right? These things were part of our tradition 
but they tended to get to get they tended to be forgotten in the wake of Vatican I and the whole ultramontanist spirit that kind of swept through the church. And look, wait, I've, wait. I've, I've what noticed. does ultramontanist mean? Yeah. So around the time of let's put it this way, after the French Revolution, the church was on the run in Europe. Anti-clericalism, Freemasonry, rising socialism, eventually communism, all of these ideologies were were uh, forcibly acting against the church, trying to suppress the church, trying to destroy Catholic schools, trying to uh, obliterate the clergy. And in the face of that kind of pressure against Catholicism, Catholics had a very natural instinct to rally around the Pope. The Pope is our head, he's our father, he's our universal leader, he's our general in a sense, the general of the Catholic army. And we have to rally around him. And if we have a strong Pope, then he can help lead us through this, this modern battle against all of these ideologies. That's legitimate. That happened. And people needed the Pope to be that way for them. But the problem is that there, there developed also the spirit of the Pope almost as the great leader, almost like a cult of personality, right? Or a, 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 a you know, that, that it's the faith is the Pope. The faith is all about the Pope. Well, it's, it's not. I mean, that's an exaggeration. That's a caricature of it. That's a caricature that Protestants play upon quite a bit because they they would love to be able to say oh you catholics don't follow scripture you just follow whatever the pope says well we know that that's false but this spirit ultramontanism that is looking over the mountains to the pope for all of your for everything all the time kind of suggests this error right that that our faith is wrapped up in the person of the pope and in what he's teaching right now as opposed to something that's been handed down by all of the popes and all of the bishops you know, from, from the beginning until, until now. Right. Um, exactly. I just want to one touch the, on one, one point. Of the fascinating... oh. oh, go ahead, please. No, just that you talked earlier about the, the uh, bishops, the, that they're not vicars of the Pope. And I just wanted to underline that point, if I may, just for a moment, please. because I think it's so crucial. Um, and it goes along with this ultramontanism theme. So Lumen Gentium, just a short passage from number 27 of Lumen Gentium says this, the pastoral office or the habitual and daily care of their sheep is entrusted to the bishops completely, nor are they to be regarded as vicars of the Roman pontiffs, for they exercise an authority that is proper to them and are quite correctly called prelates, that is, heads of the people whom they govern. Their power, therefore, is not destroyed by the supreme and universal power of the pope, but on the contrary, it is affirmed, strengthened, and vindicated by it, since the Holy Spirit unfailingly preserves the form of government established by Christ the Lord in his church. So that passage is very powerful because what it tells you instantly is that the church is not like a, a multinational corporation in which the bishops are like branch managers and the Pope is the CEO, right? Because in a corporation, if the Pope were the CEO, he could just call up a bishop like Bishop uh, Daniel Fernandez Torres and say, you know what, Bishop, it's it's been good having you on the team, but you're fired, fired without cause because I'm the CEO, right, of Vatican Inc. Um, and, you know, and we're going to just put another manager in there. No, it's not like that. The managers, the, the, not the managers, the prelates of this mystical body, this mystical corporation are put in place by Christ and are permanently in place uh, unless they actually do something to forfeit being in place, right? So they're, they're like the people who have tenure, right? They, like professors with tenure that you can never get rid of. 
right? Um, and just as a sign of how serious that was taken, um, Pius XII, do you mind if I just tell this quick historical story Please about do. Pius XII? Pius XII, after, now, there was, there was almost nobody who was more fiercely anti-Nazi than Pius XII, right? As Eugenio Pacelli, um, although he was, I mean, he was famously engaged in diplomacy with the Third Reich, he quickly realized that he was dealing with a liar and a psychopath. And that's why he wrote the text of one of the most passionate encyclicals ever. It's called Mit Brennender Sorge. It was written by Pacelli, but it was published by his boss at the time. I shouldn't use the word boss, but the Pope uh, Pius the the Eleventh. Um, so you can't accuse Pius the Twelfth if you really know your history of being sympathetic to Hitler or the Nazis. Um, although some people have ignorantly said that. But anyway, after World War II, a bunch of people in the French government, people who had been fighting for the free French um, and who had been fighting against the Vichy regime, they asked, they, they wanted the Pope to remove not only the papal nuncio, who had been sympathetic to Vichy, but also 30 bishops and several other prelates who had all been basically in cahoots with the National Socialists in France, hmm. right? Uh, they wanted the Pope to remove all of them from office, okay? Well, how did the Pope reply? Did he say, oh, I understand, it's just terrible. Yes, I'll remove them all. No, what he said was this. He he sent a message of his displeasure with the attitude of the French government, which he regards as offensive, discourteous, and injurious. He will change the nuncio, but he will not do it without pain or protest. As for purging the episcopacy, he declared, there can be no question of changing the bishops. That has never been done that will not be done. That would be an injustice without precedent, inadmissible. Okay, these are pretty strong words, Pius XII. <laughs> and what they show is that for him, it was unthinkable to remove bishops, even if they had been in cahoots with the National Socialist government. You know that here on LifeSite, we love to tell amazing stories. There are a few so heroic and amazing as the story we're about to tell you that's coming soon. You gotta watch this. When I was in seminary, I was reading a book by Henry Nouwen. He talked about a nuclear man, you know, and people who grew up in the 1980s were kind of formed by that immediate and constant threat of nuclear annihilation. My generation has grown up, you know, under the specter of priestly sexual abuse. What say you, Mr. Poor Person? Is the defendant guilty or not guilty? I think that for many of us, that has also been all-encompassing. You know, I mean, I entered the seminary in January of 2004, and it's basically been there for me from in the beginning. One priest's sacrifice for many priestly sins. The story of Father John Hollowell. Coming soon from LifeSite News. This concept gets even stronger in uh, your article in Catholic Family News. You make mention of something that, that takes this whole notion to another level. And that's when you talk about how the shepherd can't abandon his flock in the face of the wolves, when, for argument's sake, Pope Francis installs a wolf. And 
it's life safe, so we can be pretty frank here. Um, there are wolves being appointed as bishops. Uh, one of those was Bishop McElroy. That, that's plain for anyone who wants to see. So, in that case, or in such a case, can the sitting bishop morally leave his flock? I know it's a hard question, but it it does it that really struck me from your article as I wondered, whoa, that's just that's just really powerful. Is the bishop able to leave when the new appointment for no reason, but then with a new wolf coming in, isn't he sort of commanded by a lord not to? Yes, I agree. It is, I mean, I don't really think it's a difficult question for two reasons. It seems to us to be a difficult question. A, because of our ultramontanist or even better said, I think, hyper-papalist uh, instincts or habits of thought that make us, we don't even want to think about how, uh, somebody disagreeing with the Pope on such a major level and on such a major issue. But I also think that um, that we, we tend to almost downplay or underestimate the obligation that a bishop has to his own flock and his own sheep. We, because we think of them as managers who can be moved around, and this is connected with you know, the point that Eric Semmons was talking about at the Coalition for Council Priests Conference, that ever since it's become customary to move bishops around and to advance them from a, a, a so to speak, lesser diocese to a greater diocese, it's just like career climbing. I mean, it's, you know, it's like going up through the ranks of the corporation from, you know, lower management to higher management, right? And that mentality has crept into everybody's minds so that we don't think of the bishop anymore as a father. The, the way the medievals talked about the bishop is he was the bridegroom of the diocese, of the church, the local church, just as Christ is the bridegroom of the whole church. And the Pope, in a sense, is the bridegroom of, well, the Pope would be the bridegroom of the Church of Rome. Uh, but but then also symbolically of the whole church. So too, you know, Bishop Strickland is the husband of the Church of Tyler, and you know, uh, Bishop Conley is the husband of the Church of Lincoln. And you could go on and on with all these bishops. And what does it say when the bishop then moves to another local church? You know, this is the sort of like this almost like ecclesiological polygamy, or you know, or something like that. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Like divorce and remarriage. You know, now granted, it, this is. It's not impossible to move a bishop. I'm not suggesting that it's impossible, uh, but it's it's weird against the backdrop of church history, which, where that was never done before, and for very sound reasons, theoretical and practical reasons. But also, if he's the husband of the local church, that means he's the father of the faithful. They're like his children, right? And isn't it beautiful to think, you know, in pre-modern times, the image of a father was something that people thought of in a warm sort of way. Like now everybody attacks patriarchy and fatherhood is is dismissed or you know attacked um, or seen as an arbitrary social construct. But in reality, fatherhood, the fatherhood of God is the source of all authority. And all fatherhood on heaven and earth is named after the fatherhood of God, right? So the, the highest title of a bishop in a way would be father of his children and then shepherd of his flock to use another metaphor. So yes, I would say absolutely, it's not difficult in itself to say that a bishop should be prepared rather to die than not to continue to care for his children and his flock, especially if he thought they were in danger of having sacraments removed from them or of having sound teaching removed from them. That, that for me says it all. The, all of the hassle, awkwardness, uh, 
possible removal of the buildings, who knows what. Mm-hmm. It's all it's all not only worth it, they're called to do it. It makes so much sense. But there's actually more. Um in your essay there, which which I thought was fascinating, um you talk about also a quote from the scriptures. Uh, St. Paul. Um, and it was stunning because you don't, you don't think of that somehow in, in reference to the Pope, but it applies very well. It goes, even if I or an angel from heaven were to come and preach another gospel, let him be anathema. Explain that, please, in reference to the Pope. I thought it was so brilliant. Yeah, so so St. Vincent of, of Lorenz, uh, who is the wonderful church father who first articulated the idea that the deposit of faith can never essentially change, even if the way that we understand it and formulate it can develop and improve over time or become fuller is really a better way of saying it. But the, the essence of the faith, the substance of it never changes. Um, and and, and St. Vincent of Lorenz is often misquoted by the Pope just as if he's like an evolutionist on doctrine that, you know, you can start with a fish and end with, with a, a mammal or something. But uh, that's certainly not, that's completely the contrary of what St. Vincent of Lorenz says. He says that the deposit of faith is so rock solid, it's so definite and definitive that once it's been given by Christ our Lord to the apostles, not even the apostles have the authority to change it. And not even the angels who are above the apostles, the angels in heaven, they see God face to face. Not even the angels can change this. If, I mean, it's a pair, it's a pair impossible statement of Paul. Even if an angel from heaven came down and said something other, you shouldn't follow that angel. You should follow the original deposit of faith. But what I find even more striking is that Paul says, if we, i.e. the apostles, talking about himself, Peter, Andrew, John, James, if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we preached originally, let us be accursed. Let us be anathema, right? Don't follow us. I mean, there, I think that there's almost no verse in scripture that more, that more beautifully highlights the fact that the Pope and the bishops are subordinate to the truth and not superior to it. They're not in control of it. They can't mold it as a, however they wish so that they can agree with the globalist humanist transhumanist or transgender or whatever agenda they can't do that they have no authority to do that and and that's unfortunately it does seem in in a lot of ways that's where we're at Mm -hmm. the clarity if you will (laughs) with which the pope is now um teaching for lack of a better word because it is how it's received on lgbt is just that and i I mean, how can we change that teaching of the church that sodomy is wrong, that it's one of the crimes that cries to heaven for vengeance? It's it's something that harms the individual. It harms all society. And it and I mean just the individual in his physical and psychological makeup, but it harms them for all eternity as well. Yes. There's no yes. changing. Of course it can't be changed. And this is where, I mean, one of the themes that I that I insist on over and over again in my writing is God gave us two two very powerful gifts. John Paul II called them wings with which we can rise up to to the contemplation of truth. But but I would also just call them gifts, namely reason and faith, right? And we can see with our reason that certain 
acts are contrary to natural law. Even the pagan philosophers like Plato and Aristotle saw that homosexuality was contrary to human nature and to the natural law. Uh, Plato is a complicated case, but even he, you can show, um, has ultimately a negative uh, assessment of homosexuality. Aristotle unquestionably rejects it. And these men lived without any benefit of divine revelation whatsoever. Um, we have reason, the gift of reason, and we have the gift of faith. And the gift of faith gives us access to the teaching of Christ and the teaching of the whole church over all the ages. There's no question whatsoever about the uninterrupted, constant, universal, ordinary magisterium on issues of sexual morality, the issues concerning the sixth and ninth commandments. There's no question about it. It's not up for debate. <laughs> and if a Catholic thinks it's up for debate, that shows that they haven't even put two and two together. Or maybe as with Father Spadaro, they've put two and two together and gotten five, right? Mm -hmm. And they need to figure out how to do math and how to do theology again, because you can't get five out of two plus two. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing. But of course, modernity is characterized um, in general, even outside the church, by irrationality, irrationalism, um, the exaltation of the ego, of the will, voluntarism, you know, it, it's, uh, it's I want what I want, reality is what I want to make it. That kind of thinking has been around in philosophy for centuries now, and it's permeated everybody's minds. So, so reason has is having a terribly hard time right now. And as for faith, um, how many people really take pains to learn their faith, right? Those of us who do take pains to learn our faith, and we read good old catechisms, which all agreed with each other, hundreds of catechisms going back hundreds of years, all agreed with each other about everything of importance. Um, you know, when we do study those things, we can see very clearly what the church teaches, what is the Catholic faith, and how Pope Francis is departing from it. And somebody like um, Victor Manuel Fernandez, the new appointee of the, uh, for the Dicastro for the Doctrine of the Faith, you know, that appointment in and of itself, if that isn't a supreme wake-up moment for all of the conservatives or all of the moderates who are still sitting on the fence, I'm afraid they're just going to die on the fence. I mean, they're just going to, they're like, they're glued to it. Because if you can't see that this man is, he's totally unsuitable for the office. He has, he's, he has questionable morality. Certainly ideas contrary to the doctrine of the faith. And he's being put in charge of the doctrine of the faith. I mean, this is like, this is, I'm sorry to say, but this is like Pope Francis rubbing salt into the wounds that all of us have from the past 10 years. Um, hmm. So at this point, if, if the church is not in a state of the gravest ecclesial crisis that we've ever seen in history, and I, I'm, I'm willing to defend that much worse than the Arian crisis in the fourth century. Um, if we're not there, then I don't know how we could possibly get there because, because tell me exactly how things could be worse than they are. It's and by the way, the reason, the reason I make that point about the crisis or the emergency is simply mm -hmm. that it's in, that certain steps are more defensible or more necessary when there is an emergency or when there is a crisis than in times of peace. That's also an accepted moral principle. There are things we can do when a house is burning down that we can't do when the house is not burning down. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's certainly burning down right now. So this, however hard and, and, logistically it sounds insane and, and just the awkwardness of it all would be horrible and who knows what it would create all sorts of things but it's still better than having the shepherd run away when a wolf's coming in still better than abandoning your flock to be 
abused by false teaching and and denial of sacraments. Does this play out at the parish priest level as well, where you have a dictatorial bishop and a pastor in a parish who is being removed again for <laughs> doing good things, um, and then ha having a wolf come in? Is it the same thing, or is there a difference there? You know, it's it seems to me that it's it's much more grave when you're talking about the pope unjustly removing a bishop than when you're talking about a bishop moving a priest around because the priests don't have their pastorships and their faculties by divine institution from Christ. Um, hmm. They are simply given them by the bishop. Essentially, the way to think about the presbyterate of a diocese is that all of the priests are an extension of the bishop because he can't be everywhere at the same time. Um, and that's certainly the way it developed in the ancient church. In the beginning, in the very beginning, when there, when the flock was small, it was the bishops who who celebrated mass, who did the sacraments, right? And as the church grew and grew and grew during the early centuries, and especially after the fourth century when Christianity was legalized and it took off, you know, like wildfire, um, it, the bishops basically were overwhelmed. They couldn't possibly be everywhere. We even see this nowadays with bishops doing confirmations. You know, in some big dioceses, they need they they use auxiliary bishops because they couldn't possibly be you know go and confirm everybody, even though that's proper to the bishop. Um, and that's why that's part of the reason why auxiliary bishops were were uh, created. Um, but uh, but the the pre the priests are just an extension of the bishop, and so he really can move them around more like pawns on a chessboard. I mean, I don't mean this. Mm. That's a little bit denigrating, and I don't mean it to sound that way. But they really are very much subject to where the bishop wants them to be. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't fight back canonically or resist when they are unjustly attacked or removed or disciplined. Um, and that's part of the reason the Coalition for Canceled Priests exists. There's a lot of that kind of injustice going on, and it is injustice, and it should be identified publicly as injustice so that bishops can be at least ashamed into acting better, right, or, or, or undoing some of the damage that they've done. But still, you couldn't ever say, I'm a pastor by Christ's divine institution. You can't say that. Um, whereas the bishops are not so to speak, just an extension of the Pope, because the Pope can't be everywhere in the world. That, that That's false, because it, for that to be true, Christ would have had to have appointed only one apostle, Peter, and then there was one apostle, there was one bishop for a while, and then the one bishop said, I'm too busy, I can't go to every city in Asia Minor, so I'm going to appoint other people who represent me. Those, that would be the vicars of the Pope model that we just rejected, or, and we saw Lumen Gentium rejected. So from the beginning, Christ said, I want there to be many bishops. Right, that's by divine institution. So. Mm -hmm. You know, it's amazing to think that there is a way forward. It might be messy, but there's a way forward amidst all the confusion. We just need to find those bishops who are willing to stand up. I, we all got to really pray. Bishop Strickland, obviously, is one that comes most to mind and which sort of spurred this conversation. Uh, Peter, I have to have you back on. We've got to talk about your book, but thank you for doing this because it's so timely right now that um, I think it really needed to be out there. People need to understand it might be messy, but uh, yes. there's and a way forward. I, let me add one final point about the messiness, right? Mm -hmm. In church history, the fourth century is really, really valuable to study because, of course, we all know in the fourth century there's the Arian crisis. But what a lot of people don't realize is that the crisis spread so widely that in many dioceses 
of the world, there were two there were two men claiming to be bishop. There was an Arian bishop and a Catholic bishop. Okay. Hmm. And sometimes what happened is that there was a Catholic bishop and he was somehow an attempt was made to bump him out by appointing an Arian bishop or a Catholic bishop died and then an Arian bishop was put in his place. Um, but perhaps a Catholic bishop like St. Athanasius came through to minister to the Orthodox faithful. I mean, different scenarios in different places. Um, the point is, it was very messy, extraordinarily messy, right? But somebody like St. Athanasius, he didn't ever say either, it's too messy, let's not do this. No, he just took, he just dealt with the mess. I mean, he had to, you know, because this yeah. is what abandoned the flock. Even if it's the flock outside your diocese, you don't abandon them. In, in his case, he was kind of a roving bishop in a sense. And, and he also didn't just say, well, you know, the Pope wants it to be this way. Um, Pope Liberius has excommunicate, excommunicated me, so I guess I'll just stop saying liturgy and stop acting like a bishop. No, even when he was excommunicated, he continued to act like a bishop and he continued to do liturgy, right? So uh, God gave us St. Athanasius for a reason. He wants him to be a permanent example for other crisis periods in church history. I'm sure the faithful played a lot of the role too, because you got to support your true bishop at a time when a lot of people will be saying, he's not the bishop. He's been kicked out. Stop already. You're just being yeah. so radical. It's mm -hmm. all it is, is being faithful. Yes. Wow. Amen. Beautiful. Peter Kuznetsky, thank you so very much. You're welcome, John. Thank you. God bless you. And God bless all of you. And we'll see you next time. Hi, everyone. This is John Henry Weston. We hope you enjoyed this program. To see more like it, be sure to hit the subscribe button below to get all the latest content from LifeSite News. Check the links in the description to read more and connect